Without further ado, I want to thank uh, Mike Leiden for coming here. We're, we're very excited about this because Mike is, is certainly someone who's had an influence on not only the way that I think of planning and the way that our firm thinks of planning, but I think that, you know, he's, he's someone who has had a global and national influence on planning. Um, he's a principal at Street Plans. He leads the firm's New York office. Um, he's best known for uh, writing the book uh, Tactical Urbanism, but he wrote uh, several downloadable Tactical Urbanism books as well. He was a co-creator of the Smart Growth Manual. Um, so he's really the, the leading expert on, uh, on the subject of Tactical Urbanism. And he's also... Uh, the creator of the Open Streets Project, which I'll, I'll let Mike tell us about what open streets are as we go along and what he is doing right now that I think is, is particularly um, relevant to that. So, uh, Mike, uh, with no further ado, thanks for, uh, thanks for being on the PlaceCast. Well, thanks for having me, Rick. So um, one thing that, that I'm very curious about, because this is a time of definitely rethinking a lot of the ways that, that we do planning, and it's a time when we've really, the system that we have that you and I and, and others like us have long kind of said is not very resilient, um, but it's really showing how unresilient it is and it's showing how traditional planning is, is really working. Um, you're, you're, known, uh, you're best known, like I said, for uh, the ideas of tactical urbanism, but you know, you're somebody who's, who's a planner and, and that um, you know, you're, you're someone who thinks about these issues from beginning to end and tactical urbanism and sort of the incremental ethos I know is, is one element of that. Um, so you've got several projects that you're doing right now for some of your clients. I'm curious to see how you might be rethinking them or restructuring them in light of the crisis that we're now facing and maybe an example or two of, of where you're having to, to kind of restructure some things. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a very interesting time with our work. I mean, some of it continues as it normally would, is on a strong pace, and has actually not been interrupted. While other projects, you know, are being delayed or shifted. I think the ones that are being, you know, the most impacted are those in which we were about to engage with people publicly in some sort of workshop forum. You know, uh, you know, walking toward like that kind of public engagement component has obviously been um, altered or changed. And so in a number of communities, we're you know, either actively thinking through how to approach that with that activity that's coming up, or we've since delayed it and are you know, putting a new strategy in place. Um, it's, you know, these are everything from redesigning a main street, um, which is like a, a seven-year state-funded DOT-type project in Massachusetts, where we are involved on the very front end doing the engagement work with the community and local businesses, as well as the testing of the 25% design, as as the term is called for, you know, basically the first draft of how you're approaching the project to things that are more immediate, such as we had a, you know, many projects we were set to install physically with neighborhood groups on streets that um, we're having to push off for, it looks like, several months now. So we've definitely had a bit of an impact to the business and to the company, but in the same time, you know, other projects are now shifting and coming up and opportunities are arising for us because of our experience with open streets and, and tactical urbanism and being able to help communities and clients think through how to do this stuff and be effective. And so there's lots of needs right now and a lot of needs that we can't quite understand what they are right now, but maybe in four or six or eight weeks we will. And the the iterative incremental you know, evaluation, 
piece to what we do is going to be really important for cities uh, and how they move to recover and ideally, you know, come back stronger from all this. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, can you? So I, I'm. I, you actually brought up made me curious about several questions, but I'd I'd like to know what you think about this in terms of engagement. Um, obviously, this this changes the way that that we have to do public engagement, and it means that um, you know if we're doing something online, that 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 certainly excludes some people. Um, it also includes some people to make them more likely to participate who would have been unlikely maybe to participate before. Uh, so it can be hoped that maybe going forward there's there's a hybrid. Can you talk about that? Do you have any thoughts about how that might look? Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, I think we, we always can improve and expand upon the ways we do engagement. I think what this has forced communities to do is just to continue moving forward on things and for regular, you know, governmental bodies to meet and city councils to, to you know, do their work. It's been essential to be able to use things like Zoom, right, um, and video chat. And I think a lot of people are realizing I'm perfectly happy to dial in to a city council meeting or weigh in on something at 7.30 at night if I'm at home already and I don't have to <laughs> go between two venues and I'm already in the comfort of my home, maybe I've fed myself or my family or whatever, um, it's easier to just participate that way. So we're reaching a whole new audience through the digital-only side. Um, there's some things that are lost through that, obviously, but... Um, you know, I think it is expanding the capacity of cities to understand that there will be more people who will come to that format. Um, but, of course, that doesn't work for everybody, um, and it certainly doesn't work if you are not, you know, as comfortable or use your computers all day long like like we do. And so I think that excludes people um, who are of less means or perhaps are older. And um, I think you're right that some sort of hybrid where we definitely don't want to discard all the public in-person engagement we do. I find that to be, for those who do engage, you know, if you've designed your process right, to be very high quality and important. But it's also very limiting in the number of people that you reach. So the opportunity now is to try to figure out for the next few months what works well about this remote style and what doesn't. And then what do we really think was essential and is important for the in-person engagement? And how do you kind of craft a strategy where both of them can be used together to be more impactful. I think I think that sounds wonderful. And I can tell you, you know, one of the things that I, I sometimes hear is that um, people are burnt out by public engagement, um, which whenever I hear that, I'm thinking, well, then they're, they're not using some synonym of the word engage because if people are involved or included or something, they, they don't get burnt out by it. Um, so I think that that challenging that and giving it, you know, having more of a of, of a variety of ways to connect with people, I think is, is going to be fantastic, both on in-person and digital. Um, and I think it's going to really democratize the process. You know, I think that if you have to sit through, uh, you know, some, some dreary two-hour public meeting, um, that might not be a very democratic way to, uh, to kind of get your opinion out there and, and connect with your elected officials. So that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's also giving, giving some people the tools to be able to go and do some of the input information gathering, you know, um, themselves. And so, um, you know, for example, we have a bike and pedestrian plan that we're working on in New Haven, Connecticut. And, you know, normally what I would do is I would go and meet at least once, if not several times and go to different neighborhoods and meet up with groups of say five to 10 or 15 people and we go for a walk, we go for a ride, and I get to know people, I get to know us so we can build trust. 
um, and I get to know the community from their perspective. And I always find that to be really, really useful. Um, but I would also say that the level of analysis that we're doing is not so complicated that I can't just you know give somebody a PDF to print out or the city could not just distribute the forms and that person can go out on their own time on a Sunday afternoon when it's beautiful and take a walk around their neighborhood and do the exact same thing. Now, you miss that kind of teaching moments, learning from each other, the, the social interaction, but the information quality gathering is going to be exactly the same from like the actual questions that we're asking on, in that sort of infield engagement. So, you know, there's, there's ways that we can work around this that, you know, it's not a bad thing if someone wants to do this on their own, even beyond, you know, engaging for one Saturday afternoon with, with myself. But that keeps, you know, two hours in the budget for some other task and it keeps, you know, the timeline on somebody else's convenience. So, you know, there's pros and cons. Interesting. I got a, I got a question. Um, so with your, with your book title, you got short-term action for, for long-term change. And, it's something that Rick and I talk about a lot where getting people excited about the long term but taking action in the short term. How how do you like to link the two? Because, you know, one of the examples Rick likes to talk about is well if you want to go to Stanford, you need to learn how to study you need to study right now so you can get good grades on this test. And then eventually your good grades will accumulate and you'll be able to get into Stanford someday. But I always make the point that you gotta talk about getting into Stanford someday to get people excited about taking a test. Otherwise, you're just taking a test. So what are some ways that you like to link the short-term tactical to the long-term goals whenever you're talking to people about and getting them excited about those long-term goals? Well, I think that the key thing is you still need to set a vision and and think about why we're doing this and where we're going. Um, that vision doesn't have to be so concrete that you're proposing, look, we're going to do this project and it's coming in 10 years. And right now this is, you know, one small bit of it. What we really are talking about is being able to start something and then see where that takes you. Right. We, we want a more livable community. We want it to be walkable. We want there to be less traffic crashes. We want a public space to gather. Like those are kind of higher level goals. Um, how you get there can really evolve year to year and is you know something you set out to do in you know January of this year? Look at the pandemic, right? Like it's not necessarily how we're going to be doing something you know in May, let alone the following January or five years from now. So it recognizes the need for um, that iteration and to learn as you go. And that every four years you might have a new mayor and council will turn over and staff will leave. And there's just these irregularities in the process that you can't just paint a perfect picture. And so it's, it's just much more about a process and committing to that inquiry of we're going to try it and see where the momentum goes and what people like and what they don't and kind of double down on that. And, you know, the vision sometimes can change and that's okay because we all are going to change in the next several months and years as we work towards better communities. So, um, you know, it's really the, the uh, Jaime Lerner quote of to innovate is to start is really the whole key, right? You have to start doing it or else you just keep talking around and around and around or planning around and around. So the doing is what leads to the clarity of what should come next. Yeah, I think that's a great point too that you bring up of the process. And two, I think it highlights a lot of what we're hearing right now is there's a lot of uncertainty. and there, there, But there's always been uncertainty. You never know what's gonna happen. This just has exacerbated the, the fact that cities are now realizing more than ever, oh, I, I don't necessarily, maybe before they thought they knew, but now, there's less uh, of an understanding of what the future holds. And so therefore the incremental approach makes even more sense because you have to take it one step at a time. 
Yeah, one step at a time. And I think, you know, again, the, the caveat being that um, your, your one step has to be thinking strategically at the same time it's being tactical, right? Um, why would you pick these three blocks to do something at a small scale? What does it relate to that's bigger? What's the network conversation that you're having? What's the opportunity to take that intervention and replicate it because there's 30 other you know, three block stretches in the, you know, in the city that are kind of just like that. Right. So you're looking for redundancy in a way that allows the, the success and the learnings and the failures to be kind of put out there, um, typologically so that you can learn from that. And if you're successful, be able to then apply that at scale. So I take a really quick example in, in New York city, the, um, the plaza program here is so famous because it, um, you know, we've reclaimed, was it, I can't remember the full square footage or acreage, but it's a huge amount of space at the increment of 75 plazas that have all been delivered with very interim, very, very low cost materials um, around the whole city. So you find these, you know, lo, you know, centrally located in neighborhoods, irregularities in the street network, and you fix the irregularity, you create a safer intersection, at the same time carving out space for people uh, that can also support social life and economic life um, while having all these other side benefits. Well, that's a condition that you can find all over New York, right? So it's redundant. You can have a typical kind of toolkit approach, roll out the first versions of this, and then each one of those gets set off on its own timeline for what comes next and when it comes. And that's all dependent on hyper-local conditions and the way the city budget might evolve, et cetera. But you've started it and you've embedded that in a place um, and you've kind of attacked a repeating condition or challenge with something that's very positive that you can keep doing over and over. And even in a city as as wealthy as New York, you know, I find it interesting that whether you're in a wealthy city or you're not in a wealthy city, the, the answer is not necessarily um, to pour a lot of money at it, um, but to look for opportunities and, and take the next step. And, and what I always talk about is kind of taking space that's underutilized in some way and kind of giving it to people starting one increment at a time. Um, yeah, exactly. can you uh, Can you tell the uh, the, the listeners um, who make, because we have a, a variety of familiarity among listeners, um, what open streets are, because you've been, you've been working on open streets for several years now, um, and how the, the open streets is particularly relevant um, to the current conditions that we face and kind of what you've been doing to gather information about that around the globe. Yeah, so so open streets is something I got very interested in as an advocate um, and a practicing planner. I lived in Miami, and so this goes back to two thousand six and seven uh, and eight. And there, uh, we found an opportunity to well, we had a supportive mayor and an opportunity to get a quick win on just the beginning of what was the start of you know the, the bike planning at all in the city of Miami. And so we can't build you know a hundred mile network overnight necessarily, but we could certainly give people that experience of being in a very safe and welcoming environment. And so we mimicked what Bogota had done, what other leading U.S. cities had just started to do at that time, which is 2008. And I got hooked on that idea because the experience of it was so tangential and, um, sorry, tangible, and it was so uh, apparent to people. They could see their city in a different way. It was fun. Anybody could access it. Um, it really just was something that brought the experience of livable streets to people in a way that was visceral versus like seeing a line on a map in a, you know, a city hall. So in any event, that time kind of reminds me of this time right now because I got really interested in that movement that was emergent in the U.S. 
um, where at that time there might have been a dozen cities, and now there's like 160 or 70 cities that do open streets. And so as that movement was ascendant, we kind of decided to like really study this issue and become advocates for it because I felt the whole, you know we had the, the experience of the power of that in Miami, and I want other cities to be able to tap into that. And so I kind of typologically was able to define and track that movement for a number of years. We put out with some grant funding um, a guidebook, and that became kind of a joint project with us and what was then called the Alliance for Biking and Walking. And now it remains kind of a, a loose partnership between 880 cities and street plans where we've held a number of, um, of national or actually international gatherings to disseminate best practices for open streets. Now, pre-pandemic, there's a certain playbook for, for open streets that works in a number of ways in given cities. Primarily, it relies upon uh, programming, you know, and bringing in activity to a street in a way that is novel because you're not normally allowed to take a dance class or paint um, in the middle of a street in a setting that's still open to movement, right? It's, this is not about having a street fair, right? It's not about, um, you know, that kind of event it's, or, or block party. It's different. It's a bigger scale. It's more about movement and community and health and, and viewing your city differently. And so those, um, those best practices of, you know, of course, continue to help develop and expand upon this movement. But it's that same toolkit that's being applied now, at least the framing of it, we need to open the streets, right? Um, during the pandemic, we need to give communities a release valve if parks are closed down or sidewalks feel too narrow and unsafe to pass each other you know, too closely. Opening the streets now is a very different connotation or meeting. It's the same kind of idea generally, but we're not going out there and programming the street. No one's saying let's bring music into the street and have activity zones. And we're not talking about doing, you know, 10 miles from Central Park down to the Brooklyn Bridge. It's like not about that right now. Um, it's more about giving people access and particularly around, um, you know, corridors that get people to places to be physically active during a time when a lot of people are not. Um, and then providing and improving access for people who are essential workers um, to hospitals, to, you know, to transit, et cetera. Um, so it, it's interesting because I'm, I, you know, I've been documenting this movement from cities doing this in the exact same way um, as I did with Open Streets a decade ago. But the timeline's gone from like three years to three weeks. You know, like I was documenting that over years. Okay, that's now another, you know, say spring season and another six cities have announced they're doing their five-mile open streets on these streets and like, oh, it's this kind of route type and it's this kind of funding, you know, mechanism. And now we're, you know, categorizing and, and cataloging what cities are doing across the globe in response to, to COVID-19 and you know, really have seen a really clear typology emerge, some best practices, some lessons learned are just becoming known. And our work right now is about disseminating that and articulating that for communities that can make good decisions, whether they're closing something at the scale of the block or you know, taking one lane of traffic off of a bridge to provide enough lateral space for people at a critical pinch point in the active transportation network, or it's you know, Paris who's gonna build 650 kilometers, 400 miles of protected bikeways in a matter of probably months or years that would have taken decades um, using temporary materials to start. So like it runs the whole gamut and every city is a little bit different, but we're all at this point where we can learn from each other and, and share that learning, which is exactly what we were trying to do with Open Streets a decade ago. So there's a linkage there that's interesting. Yeah, and, and it'll be, it, it'll be uh, pretty fascinating to see how these temporary changes when a place like Paris does this 
become permanent because probably the the vehicular traffic or the motor vehicles I should say are going to be coming in gradually so it may be that there's some places where they see that it can make sense to keep this and some places where they don't but it's probably a good time to think of things like a, a bike network um, and, and things like that um, I'm curious, one of the things that we're thinking about with uh, a couple of our clients right now is we're kind of, like you, we're restructuring um, at least the order of things in some of our contracts. Uh, and what we're looking at is is what I would kind of describe maybe as a, a spectrum of social distancing. And we're working on saying, what exactly is that? Um, you, we're located in Texas, and, and we have clients, you know, in, in uh, small towns in Texas. I know that you have um, global, you know, you, you work globally, but obviously you're located in uh, Brooklyn, so you're unfortunately kind of in the, the belly of the beast. Um, one of the things that we're looking at is trying to figure out best practices that might range from uh, when you have stricter social distancing. So, you know, even we're talking about things like pop-up movie theaters, which we've seen some examples of. We're thinking of things like really creating, you know, high public art that might start to just, you know, create a sense of hope and so forth. But then we're starting to think, okay, when we have events that we actually have people coming out of their cars what does that mean? How do you plan for it? And how do you plan for maybe a range of, of social distancing um, that might be from kind of, you know, that, that you have to keep very strict six feet over to maybe what we had, you know, a, a month and a half ago where the rules weren't as strict as long as you didn't have big gatherings, but you, you knew not to be a jerk and get too close to somebody's face, right? Um, have you seen or have you worked on plans that are considering that? Or do you have any thoughts on how that might look? Yeah, I mean, a few things are starting to emerge. I mean, I think the, the reopening of public spaces and, you know, take it as a, as a broad definition, you know, all these things have to be thought through, at least I think for the scale of months, you know, hopefully not years, but certainly for, for many months to come as we phase life back into our public realm. Um, you know, how do you handle a farmer's market, right? The stalls are going to be spaced differently. What if, you know, you only had, what if you had like a, a block that you did a farmer's market on and all of a sudden, because of the distancing, you can't fit as many stalls, but then you don't have as much space to spill over. What do you do, right? Maybe you take the curb lane, right? Maybe you do something else. I don't know. Like there's other tactics that have to be considered because of the spacing that will impact the way we think of and conceive of what we would otherwise do as placemaking interventions, right? So the... um the idea of a walk-in movie theater, right, um, is interesting. Uh, look, we would always think about programming of space, uh, if it's a public space or interim public space, with movies. That's interesting. I still think we can do that, but it might mean spatially we would align it differently or capacity-wise it might be different. Um, you know, one of the projects we're, we're starting to work on now is thinking through how you open up restaurant dining uh, for the businesses that are really going to need it. You know, we, we were discussing earlier... Um, that you know, Dallas or sorry, the state of Texas is allowing restaurants at a 25% capacity. Um, that's all well and good. We hope in terms of not spreading the disease further. But like in any event, every state will eventually get to that point. Um, do the 25% of people just come rushing back and want to sit in the middle of the restaurant next and next to each other all the time? Maybe not. Maybe we need to like look at the outdoor space around the restaurant as being usable space to help spread us out a little bit more. Maybe that means, you know, curb lane, you know, seating 
in some instances in some of your walkable districts. Maybe it means activating some of the backyards that may not have been used for outdoor dining. Maybe it means the way you rearrange tables inside the restaurant as well. Um, and the spatial implications of that are very different if you're doing, let's say there's one restaurant on a block. And let's say they get permission to use the curb lane for either pickup drop-off or for seating. Um, you know, that's a very different thing than if you've got like six or eight restaurants on a block basically next to each other. How do you orient that space. Now you're basically talking about almost like a promenade of, of dining decks or ways to respond to that need differently than, um, than if it's just a one-off. So thinking through the density and clustering and the uses and how you respond to space and how do people access that space is going to be a really tricky and important problem to try to solve, at least in the near term. Um, but not just in the near term, but to think through, okay, what if we put these measures in place for the summer or for like the next two months? How do we transition out of that? And do we want to? Maybe some of the things we put into play actually work pretty well and might work even better if we are back to 100% capacity with our, our restaurants. So um, there's a bunch of these like interconnected issues that really are at the block or parcel scale that um, are going to impact, I think, public life and public realm at a, at a more macro scale across a neighborhood or a city that we have to start really thinking through and then testing and trying and seeing what works and what doesn't. Um, there will be some of these things that probably don't work very well, but we need to try it out. And and hopefully the uh, entrepreneurs and, and, and property owners can find a way to help this interim period uh, give them a toehold back on the market. Interesting. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting too to see how long we remember the lessons that we learned from this, right? Because you know, like Rick likes to talk about, you know, a lot of these different cities and towns that were planned you know, long before we had computers and uh, professions of city planning, you know, there were timeless principles that people used. And I think it's easy for us, you know, I, it's easy for me to even see in like 10, 15 years, people are like, well, why do we do it that way? It's like, oh, well, remember the, the coronavirus. I'll oh, remember the Spanish flu. Remember, like, it seems to happen, you know, every 100, 150 years or so, at least in recent history. So it's just one of those things that It'll be interesting to see how we remember it. And, and it's, it's interesting. I'm looking at, at your, I have your book in front of me right now, and you have the quote, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. And just for everybody listening, he's not talking about, you know, like making a bunch of money off of it. He's talking about how his company learned to be generous to the communities that they're working in and how he developed his different principles. And I think it's really interesting. You know, we've talked a lot about the different things that we think can grow out of this. And uh, I do think that as much as we love technology, I think we're all very much wanting to get uh, more interconnected with our communities because of this, which should be a good thing. Um, but there's a, it's a really interesting I think that that's in there that's that I'm like oh that's like the first quote in your in one of your books and you know now we're going through this right now it's a it's it's quite it's quite a telling um time that we have right now yeah you know I, you're right I mean I think the we're in a crisis and where we've seen cities who've previously been nimble or had a familiarity with incremental engagement with the street and you know being creative those cities, insofar they've had capacity, staffing, or even just having the materials on hand, are doing pretty well. And are able to start to figure this out. They're kind of the first movers in trying to rethink um, what the city should be like um, when we turn the lights back on, so to speak, right? Like there, we can totally rearrange the deck right now, you know? And so there's an opportunity to do that. And it's a, it's a horrible thing to waste. Um, 
particularly because we can make stronger cities and make better transportation networks and, and really use the moment to leverage that. I feel like probably most cities won't, honestly. Um, a lot of cities will just be like, let's just get through this, hunker down, and then let's go back to business as usual. That was, that was preferred you know, than, than going through this. But other cities will learn, and those other cities will create the lessons for the next 10 years that then maybe those who are sitting on the fence right now may adopt three years, five years, 10 years from now themselves. So um, you know, there's, a, there's a whole wide range of experiences that people are having in cities right now, um, both from a, you know, how badly the community is being hit with the pandemic to staffing capacity, to realizing that they weren't prepared for something like this, to realizing that they can be nibble and building confidence, to realizing that, look, there can be a huge amount of citizen and city trust that's, that's mutual um, that we can rely upon right now, or we have no trust in the public realm and each other, so we're not going to invite any of that activity. Um, so there's a lot of things you could tease, you know, we could tease out there, but I think the issue of trust has been one of the big ones I've been harping on because in our city, the mayor has been so um, difficult in even considering open streets or shared streets like you see in Oakland, Salt Lake City, Seattle, um, Burlington, Vermont, et cetera. He finally today announced that we're going to commit to 100 miles of streets, which is, which is good. Um, it took him three or four weeks to get there, which is painful. Um, you know, there's just... there's. There's an opportunity that I think was wasted to a degree here that could have helped get a better toehold in in what comes next and kind of establishing that vision and leveraging this moment. And we're going to get there maybe now, but other cities have been more successful at being able to kind of move more quickly. And that's that's especially frustrating because not only obviously is New York uh, the city that's been hit the hardest, but... um, at least in terms of total numbers and, and up there in terms of per capita too. Um, but you also have a lot of people who are probably, you know, they're sharing a two bedroom apartment with three roommates who they don't even necessarily like or, or something like that. I mean, this is, that's a rough, rough place to be essentially quarantined for a lot of people of modest means. Um, so to not have an opportunity to exercise or get out. Um, and you also have people who temperamentally need to be out. That's why they live in New York. So that's, that's kind of um, that's kind of crazy that that that's happened. Um, you know, I do I do agree with you that most cities are probably not going to um, you know to really take as much of an opportunity as there could be. Um, one thing that I've been thinking a lot about, you know, because we in our state um, we do have cities that have you know very large piggy banks, right? Even our smaller towns, uh, you usually have economic development money that that you've kind of saved. Um, there's usually uh, you know hotel occupancy taxes that that don't have as much flexibility, but they you know they can have some. Um, cities have money in the pot, and what I think some cities, I think a lot of cities are going to be too afraid to to, to spend that, even though this is probably the time when they need it to to bridge. Um, but what I'm afraid a lot of other cities are going to do is spend it on the types of things that they were spending it on before. Um, so I'm afraid that they're going to say, well, we have several million dollars of of you know economic development money, um, maybe we can try to lure some you know some industrial use in here or something like that. Um, and and 
there's going to be more pressure not to do that because there's going to be a lot of people saying you're, you're giving money to an out-of-town person when you have small to medium-sized businesses going out of business. But I do think that that's going to be there. And I think that, um, you know, after, after there's an, a, a catastrophe um, or a crisis, people want to return back to normal. Um, but that, that couple million dollars could, could be extremely transformative to, to your downtown um, or to your neighborhoods or to a lot of other things or to your small, to your small businesses. Um, let, me, let me ask your perspective on this because certainly we know that at least temporarily – Social distancing is going to be something that's that's changing. Um, we know that at least temporarily there's going to be some very basic economic things that are going to be coming up. Um, you know, people who are going to be dealing with potential evictions and things like that once that once we kind of get through the initial shock here. Do you see other things that are going to likely change about the practice of of planning, of placemaking, transportation, economic development? Um, in the aftermath of this crisis, or do you think it's too early to anticipate that? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, obviously, this is going to have impacts across the board in our cities. Um, again, I think it's going to be spiky. It's going to be different in different places. Like, we're going to have a huge transit impact, I think, here in New York. You know, we, you know, our city's success is primarily built on our transit network. If the subway is not running and moving 6 million people a day, yeah. um, and it's moving, you know, 600,000, like it might be right now, um, that's economically a total disaster for the transit system. Um, if we don't have the same level of tourism, you know, driving up, um, you know, those numbers, and then also obviously spending money in retail restaurants, et cetera, there, there goes a lot of the, um, the money that we rely upon to run the city and the social programs that make New York such an inclusive place. So, like, it's a, you know, we're going to feel a lot of impacts from this for a while. I think cities are generally going to be a lagging impact you know, whereas you see retail workers lose their jobs immediately, the impact of that retail vacancy, um, you know, in terms of the, the taxes and then the money that the city's going to be able to glean from it, we're going to feel that, you know, three months from now and then three years perhaps from now as well. Like, it's going to be tough. Um, but, you know, the degree to which that might be different. Like, you know, if you're a city like Miami Beach, um, you're super reliant on tourism, Um then you're going to probably feel this downturn for longer than if you are a diversified economy um, uh, that has, yeah, sure, some elements of tourism for sure, um, but has other, you know, core industries that are located in the city um, producing wealth for that city. So I think it's, that's going to be interesting um, to see that play out geographically across, across the country. Again, I think, you know, we're going to be really struggling with our transit system here. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of land grabs. I think, this is going to hit real estate to a degree in certain places. And um, we're not quite seeing or feeling that yet um, that I'm seeing. Uh, maybe you are where you, you know, in Dallas and in Texas. But, um, you know, I know Houston's getting hit really hard right now economically with the oil drop. Um, but, you know, I could see that this creates even more class divide in cities. And I, I, I can see that, um, you know, the communities are being hit hardest right now in New York and in other places, um, that families will be economically desperate, that there will be lost lives and vacancy, and there will be land grabs, and developers will try to buy these properties cheaply. And um, well, you might see some gentrification advance and more displacement advance as a result of this than would normally happen um, because of the timing and all of it. So I, you know, the, the, all the numbers and indicators I'm seeing in a lot of places is that the wealthier and more educated, per usual, are making out better than those who are less wealthy and less educated. 
And so the, I, I would hate to see this happen, but the pandemic is truly potentially exacerbating that for the mid to longer term in terms of like just how inclusive a city complete can be. So that's that's one very negative outcome that could be the reality of this um, several years down the line. Um, I do think that people will want to be back together to your point. I think people do want to go to the cafe and be around other people. I think we do want to go see movies. I think people are going to be cautious at first, but I think, you know, as long as we don't have a major, you know, rebound of the virus in the next few months, then I think um, that confidence will be built relatively quickly. And, um, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm craving to go back to the office. I'm craving to be out in the park and not worry about, you know, how close my son and I are to, you know, uh, you know, people who are passing us just walking or going about their daily life. Like having that anxiety come down a bit, it's going to be really, really wonderful. I know people are going to crave that. And at the end of the day, um, you know, cities are going to be okay. Like we've gone through these crises before will be different, but I think in the long run, the 10 year, 15 year timeline, we're going to be fine. I mean, one one way to put this is that this is in many ways the the third crisis in less than 20 years um, that was centered in New York City in some way or another. And, and you know, it, a reasonable person could have looked at September 11th um, and thought that New York uh, might be toast after that or certainly might be toast as as uh, one of the one or two great financial capitals of the world. Um, and it turned out, if, if anything, that it, it, it only became, you know, even more hypergentrified after that. Um, you know, one of one of the things that I think is is, you know, in, in 2008, 2009, um, we had a big financial crisis and a lot of cities were laying people out off. But I don't think in any meaningful way that there was an alternative to the status quo that was tested, that was well thought out and that was organized. Um, so if you were a city in 2008, 2009, and, you know, it, it kind of became apparent that you had to lay off a bunch of planners and that maybe your system wasn't sustainable. Um, today, you have, you know, even some more direct things happening, such as, you know, the retail and small, you know, mom and pop businesses are going to get really hit by this. Cities are going to probably, for the most case, have much smaller budgets. Um, but one of the interesting things is, that you actually have an organized, thoughtful movement of people who've been saying for a long time, actually, it's not really about the budget. Let's take a much smaller budget and do something meaningful with it, um, and you'll actually get better results, which, which sounds counterintuitive, but, but I know that you know, we, might, we might say it's true. Um, any thoughts on, on that or on how, how kind of the movements that we have with, with you know, planners such as yourself, with the Strong Towns movement, IDA, um, and lots of others, um, and how that's going to be particularly relevant um, perhaps in the coming months and years, or could be? Yeah, I mean, I think we're we're in a better place in terms of understanding these things, and there's principles in place, and people who have practiced this stuff for a while in cities across the globe. Um, so that's encouraging. I do feel like you know there's so many cities where they might be interested in this, but not see it as a core operating mechanism moving forward, which would be unfortunate. Um, you know, I think in a lot of places, you know, we we do work in a lot of big cities. Um, around the country, et cetera. But we also work in a lot of small towns and it's in the small towns when you, you never had the budget to begin with for something big 
and flashy that this stuff is actually easier to do and it's the only logical thing to do when you don't have millions of dollars to throw out a problem. Um, so I think those places might be a little better positioned to think about quality of life and what they can offer and, um, and just continue on that path of the incremental um, to make those, those, those changes happen and not get distracted by um, the big dollars that they never had in the first place. So um, it, it's good that we're here. I think, you know, I wish we had a much longer runway in terms of establishing more um, programs, examples, et cetera. Like, you know, I think about the trajectory of the work that we've done and, you know, just the work that we were working in terms of workshops that were installing ourselves for the first time back in 2012, 2013, 2014, those projects are just now have gone through different iterations that are now almost in, in, in some degree of permanence. So that feels like a long time ago, but that was only six or seven years ago. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of things we've been working on since that are not yet there because they haven't had time to mature and evolve and become these bigger sustained projects. Um, and, you know, we'll see how they fare through this, this process. I think you might see a lot of things that might be in an interim state stay that way for the foreseeable future, and, and, and that's okay. Um, in some cases, you don't always need to go to the, the, you know, the, the fancy and the permanently built out. If people like gathering in a space, it's the right scale, there's enough programming activity, they'll spend time anywhere. I like, I like that you use the phrase core operating mechanism because um, this, is, this is something that's frustrating to me. And, and as, as the person who uh, literally wrote the books on tactical urbanism, it has to be even more frustrating to you. Um, a lot of times I'll see, even among people who are, um, in some cases, thought leaders, um, but, but certainly people who are professionals within this, um, there's kind of a perception that um, the tactical urbanism or more broadly, uh, kind of incremental, you know, take one step at a time to reach your long-term goals, um, is, is almost, I guess I would say a sideshow that it's kind of like, okay, we have the, the tactical urbanism stuff here and then there's the real planning work here. So even if they may say, yeah, let's do some tactical urbanism. Um, but, but let's also do the, the real plan with the, with the adult stuff. Um, can you talk about that? Because I'm sure it frustrates you. Yeah, it frustrates me all the time. I mean, I, I think it's for us. We see it as a methodology that is not. Um, it's both and, right? Like you need to think about those plans and de- develop those plans and deliver them, right? But how you get there and what goes into it has been the missing step. And um, it's not a sideshow. It's like I said, it's a core operating, you know, mechanism or principle. Um, you know, we call we call it a methodology for project delivery. And that's a wonky way of saying it, but it's true. Like this is something that the cities who have that familiarity are, are, are really leaning on it heavily right now. You know, the best examples of cities around the globe who are taking a step forward right now and thinking about their post-pandemic future and what that means for transportation are using very inexpensive temporary means to do that. And they're going to learn a ton of lessons from it. And they're going to be able to get to that next increment of success that um, cities or practitioners who look at it as a nice to have, not a need to have, will struggle. And, you know, I don't want places to struggle. I don't want cities to struggle. I don't want New York to struggle with this, but we are. Um, and that is disappointing. But there will be a lot of really successful, you know, things that do come out of this. And, um, you know, both with the work that we do and many others do that are in the same, use the same methodology. But I think there'll be other really interesting things that will spin out of this that we never thought of that will be good for us and good to move, you know, our livable cities movement at large forward. So, um, 
you know, I, I think the places that are doing it well, they respect it and they understand it. And, and that shows, um, we just want more places to, you know, to understand it. Well, there's so many, there's so many things that are impossible to do in, in one great leap. And it's why, you know, you don't, the, the great cities of the world, and there may be some, there, there may be some cities that I don't understand as well. And, you know, maybe an Asian context or something, but I'll talk to um, a more North American or Western context where, you know, I, I can, I can speak more on it, where you have the places that are, are very, very successful these are places that have evolved over a long, long time, over centuries or longer. Um, you know, we haven't been able to build a Manhattan from scratch. The only time, or, you know, even a, a, a Dallas, right? The only time you can build a city that's, that has any type of intensity is, is if it started with shacks and developed one step at a time. Um, and I think of, I think core operating mechanism is such a good way because, you know, incrementalism, I think people, Think of it as as it means small, um, but you know something like shutting down Times Square to to traffic. Um, that was, and maybe you can talk about that since you're the New Yorker here, and I know you've talked about it before. But you know that was something that they had on the plans for for 1969. So that's that's a huge thing. Um, so I, maybe maybe if you could talk about that, or maybe if you have another example of something that was that was kind of a big thing, but that could have only been done if, if you start with like a modest, small step. Yeah. I mean, let, let's take it down <laughs> in scale pretty dramatically. Most places aren't New York, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah. No, no. New York is unique in its scale for sure. But, um, but every place has a history. And I think, you know, the, the time that you can uh, point to, you know, even just going back 30 or 40 years, you'll find good ideas that were never brought forward. And so in some ways, you almost never need new plans in some cases, like whole new plans. Sometimes you just need to go back to the existing plans. And this is something that, you know, Jason Roberts talks about a fair amount, too. And I, I totally, you know, align with him on this for sure, um, like, like most things, um, which is that you can just take a plan off the shelf that's been sitting there for 30 years, you know, dig out the projects that were never finished or built or started and start them. Because a lot of the ideas are still very relevant and similar. Like, sure, you might update this, that, or the other, but for the most part, the core ideas have not changed that dramatically for, you know, 50 years. So, yeah, so digging digging into those plans from the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s and, and the aughts, you know, you'll find good ideas that you can just bring, bring forward to relevancy today. Um, and so one thing I want to point to is, uh, one community I want to point to is a place we've done a lot of work is Burlington, Vermont. So here's a community that is, yes, of course, progressively oriented. This is where Bernie Sanders was mayor. Um, so that, that being a caveat for a lot of places in the country, that politically it operates in kind of a different way than, than a lot of places. But um, at the scale that it is, you know, it's still a 42,000-person city. It's not, you know, dramatically wealthier or poorer than any other city of its scale, right? They collect their property taxes and they've got their budgets and they can only do so much every year. Um, in the early 70s, as pedestrian streets were taking hold, and we could have a whole other hour-long podcast conversation about that, um, you know, Burlington was interested in a much more livable Main Street, which is called Church Street. And rather than go build the whole thing, shut down the street all at once, and take this big leap for four blocks of transforming the, the main commercial heart, historic heart of their city with, you know, permanent materials, they basically did a one-week rebellion. <laughs> and this was, this was primarily driven by the fact that it was illegal in the state of Vermont to dine outdoors um, at that time. 
Okay, so like if you want to have a sidewalk cafe or if you want to sell your retail wares in front of your facade for, you know, from nine in the morning till six at night, you couldn't do it. It was considered unsanitary. So they went embarked on a series of small tests using, you know, interim materials put right into the middle of the street that allowed for the city and of course eventually the state to recognize that those provisions were a little bit crazy. And it was that incremental approach that built a political will that eventually got the street to be pedestrianized. And when it was pedestrianized, you know, they did the smart thing where they didn't totally seal it off from, um, from traffic, meaning that like, you could still access the street from the side streets. You, know, you could still drive through it, even though it felt like a linear you know, pedestrian plaza experience. Long story short, it still remains one of the most successful you know, pedestrian-oriented streets in, in America. And it's a great story because it started with these little week, you know, week-long um, rebellion demonstration tests that were brought forth from the merchants and the property owners saying, no, we want a more people-oriented environment, and um, here's how we do it. Now, quick side note, when I say uh, lightweight and incremental, <laughs> they brought out like massive concrete piping like on the scale of like you know eight feet in diameter and they did some pretty heavy heavy-handed things that we would never do for that short of a duration but um you know we've, we've learned those lessons since because they were pioneers and how difficult it would be just to even physically get those things into the street but um it, it's just one of these examples where uh, this is not necessarily new and that there's the, the small things that can be tested in advance whether that's a bus lane or it's a curb extension or it's a plaza or it's a pedestrian street or it's trying, you know, different things in the public right away. We've got, you know, lots of plans that have called for this stuff for a very long time. And what year did you say that was or about what year? I think it was 71 or two. I'd have to check the archives, but that, you know, I, I actually, when I started the bike master plan in Burlington, um, I was talking about tactical urbanism because we engage in a lot of demonstration projects as part of that planning process um, somebody was at the meeting and then he sent me his, a PowerPoint where he was involved with that work in the seventies. And he said, look, here are the photos. This is what we were doing. Exactly what you're talking about. We did in 1970. And I was like, perfect. Exactly. Like, this is not that new. This is just building on the wisdom and intelligence of how we were able to fast track or build support for things that otherwise seem like they're impossible to achieve. So it's it's interesting, and I don't. It's and the, by the way, I've never heard that. I don't think maybe I, you must have written about it in the book or something. So maybe I did see that, but I don't remember seeing that. That's a that's a great. Actually, story. I learned that after we published the book, which is why we're we're trying we're trying to do an update to the book with Island Press because there's been a huge amount of information in the last five years that it was you know we've learned. So that's one of them. That's a great story. Um, you know, so this is. I don't think that there's the same perception now. Um, but I think a few years ago, people associated um, tactical with with unsanctioned. And of course, um, you know, the tactical urbanism has, you know, there's a range of sanctioned and sanctioned to sanctioned as you lay out. Um, but I also think that sometimes when discussing things like tactical urbanism, um, that that people think that it's the same thing as as incrementalism. Um, but I think an incremental approach is is much bigger than that, and it can incorporate tactical urbanism. But it's probably um, a way of a way of thinking and a way of approaching projects of different scales. Um, can you do you have the same perception? And can you talk about about that? Yeah, I mean, it there is places to intervene all along the continuum of project development and delivery. So 
if your city is not paying attention to pedestrian safety and refuses to make uh, an improvement or really a minor change, um, you know, you'll see people who take it upon themselves to do that. And a lot of that was exciting to me um, 10 years ago because uh, cities didn't have the resources. They weren't, they didn't have the big budgets, you know, in the recession and, you know, fewer cities were actually oriented to the, um, the benefits of those investments that they weren't making. Um, so citizens took it upon themselves. And a lot of those projects have become, you know, sanctioned permanent, you know, initiatives or projects in their cities in which they started. So there's been a value to that. But it's really, at this point, it's a, it's a smaller and smaller minority of that work, one that we're focused on, two that we're personally engaged in. Um, and then Three, you don't have to do it. There's cities with policies that allow citizens to do these projects themselves. You know, we've helped author some of those. There's cities that are doing it themselves and bringing in volunteers and support to deliver these projects without any involvement of ours or, you know, Jason and the Team Better Block and all the other practitioners that are, you know, develop some expertise in this. You just don't, it's become part of the planning process, which is, which is exciting. Um, so I, we've seen that shift for sure. And, um, I think now the the understanding and what we're not the understanding, but what we're trying to really promote is again that idea of the operating system or the project delivery methodology is that you can engage with the community on the front end of a planning process with a small scale, let's say tempera paint and very lightweight demonstration project just to have a conversation, just to give people an excuse to gather and talk about the community physically and socially, et cetera, in the public realm. You can do that as part of the planning process. You can take a plan that you've been developing and drafting, and you can take a project that's like, hey, this seems like a priority for the community going through the engagement process. They've called on this intersection or this street or this vacant lot or whatever it may be and said, this is the problem. And you can try something as a sort of midterm or late-term part of the planning stage to get um, progress and momentum built to something bigger. You can take a finalized plan that's been adopted by city council, that's been vetted politically, that has staff alignment and support, and you can start taking projects out of that plan and start to iterate on them and incrementally install them, whether that is a demonstration or it's a pilot or it's interim design. And then you can use it as a methodology to kind of check yourself as you go through large-scale infrastructure projects. So again, I'll give that example of Main Street in uh, Northampton, Massachusetts, where we're working with Tool Design Group. So you know, Tool's a group of, of great engineers who work on you know, progressive street design projects, and they won this big multi-year you know, um, consulting project to help the city completely rebuild the Main Street. And you know, Northampton is a city of, you know, what, like 30,000 people, maybe 35,000. It's not big, um, but it's kind of in the center of a corridor full of lots of colleges. Um, it's a great historic downtown. It's a, if you look at it, it looks like it's a town from, from England. It's got this very weird grid, and the street width not only varies by block, it varies every 100 feet. It's different. So it's very wonky. Um, and we're going to redesign this entire street and build it, but it's going to be probably six years before it gets into construction. So we're using a large-scale demonstration project test to basically get to 25% design with confidence, right? So there's these really key milestones in big projects like this where you take your concept and you get that in front of the, you know, the DOT, which is a you know, state road, and they're going to have to approve that. 
we want to make sure that the design that we take to 25% is vetted by the community with the experience of delivering elements of that project that are the most exciting that we want to test. Like there's no, like deliveries are not really done in a clear way on main street in Northampton. So let's design some curbside space for deliveries. Like let's, let's bake that into the project and test out the location, test out the design treatment um, and see what works because that will then inform the official 25% design submission. Um, which I think is a really interesting way to like think about this. And you could probably do another increment of testing for the next round, but like to use that on the front end is going to allow a lot of transparency. It's going to help us test these concepts and designs for things that have never been, you know, in, implemented on a very irregular but very important street in the community. And it'll allow us to understand politically where there's support and not for some of these changes from the property owner level, from the retail level, and from the community-wide perspective. So it's um, it's a methodology that's really, really well set up for that kind of thing, which is maybe not what we had initially set out to do in 2011 or 2012 or even 2014, but we've learned through practice that it's a methodology that can really work well at that scale. It's a non-glamorous logistical issue, but it's if you don't get it right, you're going to mess everything else up. Um, so it's it's not what it, what everyone would normally associate with that with that ethos, but but it's it's essential to to um, to get it right. Um, so if you we we talk to a lot of of cities, we've been spending as much time as we can talking to either other practitioners um, or to to cities recently because we just want to kind of feel where everybody's coming from, and it's it's a different place than it was two weeks ago, and, and that was different than it was a month ago. So it's it's constantly changing. Um, but you know, we talk to a lot of people. They might be in a mid-sized city, they might be in a small town. Um, and they're seeing that things are changing very quickly and that they can't predict, obviously, what's happening next. It's a very unpredictable environment. Um, what, what advice would you give in terms of how to think of the next month and how to work um, and, and keep, as, uh, keep on as positive as a trajectory as possible in these, um, in these times when you don't know what's coming next? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be, it would be different advice, I think, for any range of communities, you know, because again, um, some communities are being impacted by this more than others. Some cities have more resources than others. Some, you know, some cities manage um, streets in the public realm in very different ways. So all of it has to be kind of keyed in into that. Um, I think, a, but a couple like overarching pieces of advice would be like, one, this is a huge opportunity to reestablish the new normal. You know, I think we, we all need to deal with the emergency that is right now, and that's first and foremost what communities are doing, and that's the most important work right now. But we also have to give our space, you know, give ourselves some space to think about cities, you know, six weeks from now and six months from now and six years from now, and how this can be an increment in, uh, in transformation and how we can shift people's mindsets around uh, the things that we like right now. Like, I like that my street is quieter right now. I don't... I don't miss the you know the six thousand cars a day. I'm actually okay with one thousand cars per day. Maybe that means we should redesign the street. You know, I like the cleaner air in New York right now. It's really nice to have clean air. Of course, it's cleaner than it was fifty years ago. But to me, like I've only known New York for the last decade, it's been about the same. Right now, the air is a lot cleaner. Um, I like being able to cross the street with my two year old son and not feel like there's rushing cars coming at me. Um, 
So that like the calculus would be different in every single community about what matters to them most right now. But I'm sure a lot of people can find the silver lining and, and communities should consider what is that silver lining? How do we bake that back into our new normal and, and, and double down on that? Because if, if people are finding there's things that they like, um, then there's a real wisdom to that. And we don't have to re, you know, put the exact same city back together again if we don't want to. And so maybe the last piece of advice would be just, you know, um, find find your leaders. Sometimes your leaders are the rabble rousers in, in the community are doing these things themselves without permission. And sometimes they're, they're the mayor or they're the city councilor or they're the, you know, the senator. But like every community has leaders. And I think a lot of them are seeing this as an opportunity, obviously not just for better streets and public spaces, but for lots of things. And so let's lean into that moment and just say, let's, let's catalyze this now because if we don't do it now, when are we going to do it? Speaking of being a leader and getting into all this, when did you know that this is kind of what you wanted to do? Like when you wanted to get into planning, when you wanted to get into, you know, helping different communities and how they, how they plan, how they, they, they build. When, when was the moment when you were like, this is what I want to do when you, when you kind of got into it? Um, uh, you'll probably laugh, but I was probably like 12, <laughs> uh, maybe 11. Um, I don't know. When I first played SimCity, I realized okay. that the complexity and the variety of things that you have to think about in the human habitat are fascinating and um, always different and always dynamic. And that always, I think, really caught my uh, attention and excitement. So even until I was probably 15 or 16, I was pretty convinced I'd, you know, I was trying to go pro and play college basketball and then professional basketball. But, you know, obviously that did not work out. And this is my second choice. And for me, it's been a really good second choice. But I will, I will say that the, um, you know, it wasn't really until my first job out of grad school that I kind of realized that planning school is important, but the way that things get done in the real world is not really what you're taught in planning school. Right. And those those realities were like put right in front of me, job number one in Miami. And I realized that we can't just rely on this system to get where we need to go. And so we have to think differently about how we we work. And so that's really been the at the core of the work that we've done at Street Plans ever since. And your first job was uh, DPZ, right? It was, yeah. Okay, that's a that's a pretty decent first job. It was a good first job for sure, and I learned a ton. And it was a great place to work for a lot of reasons. Um, and you know, the exposure to the scale of projects and the things that you know that firm was working on um, was very informative. And you know, it was through experiences like trying to change the zoning for an entire city all at once in Miami. Like that's how you understand how complex and challenging a political environment is, is you jump right into the belly of the beast with something like that. Um, but it, it made me think, look, there's all these great principles and ideas and things that we can see as planners, the zoning, this rezoning will lead to in, in, in 30 years time, we'll have, we'll have a very different city. Um, but people didn't understand it viscerally. They weren't like seeing the urgency for it. And and that's really where my compulsion for like let's just try some things and show some things and get feedback on some things that um, led to tactical urbanism. Well, it's interesting. It makes me think of you know when when Chuck Marone talks about uh, changing zoning codes and and one thing that he said is maybe you can look at at doing those incrementally too because trying to write you know a, a form based code for 
a whole, you know, region essentially um, versus, you know, pick the 10 things that that are, you know, the lines of code that everybody can specifically argue about. Um, you know, that might be the way to do things going forward because I don't even I can't even imagine the public process now for rewriting a zoning code from scratch. You know, it, it's got to be a nightmare or, or an incremental uh, certificate of, of occupancy. Right. Which we've talked about as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, Lynn and and CNU has been been pushing that. Um, I think that approach to a degree for the last uh, you know year or so, where um, let's like focus on the things that really, really, really matter and start with those, and then you can phase in some of the other um, components of a code or the land use or um, you know a zoning code in terms of regulations it provides later. Um, once you get some of the core things right, now it's easy to say that on paper and we know a lot of these things can be linked and have implications for the other things you think are less important but the the point is very well taken that um you don't have to do it all at once i mean you don't do the whole city at once and you don't have to do um you know you don't have to put the pressure on establishing um the world's best code on paper to find out that it's challenging to implement i mean just look at the you guys would know this the city of austin has had such a hard time with their code for a lot of reasons so you know it is it worth that brain damage? You know, um, I don't know. Yeah, it might have in retrospect. Um, and I know that, that, you know, when I first heard about it and was talking about it, it seemed very exciting. But in retrospect, um, you know, it's like, like you look at what Minneapolis has done, for example, where they basically said, um, you know, we, we're, we're going to allow in single family neighborhoods, we'll allow duplexes and quadplexes and things like that. You know, that's just basically creating one new line of code. And it's something that a lot of people are going to fight about and have strong opinions about. But you either do it or you don't do it. You don't have to have a battle about about every single thing. And I think that it it, it illustrates, you know, the more I've come along the more I've thought about everything, you know, not just not just kind of I- interventions physically, but everything that you do is is how are you doing this incrementally? You know, if you want to support um, businesses, um, how are you supporting, for example, um, the um, uh, you know, uh, how are you supporting, for example, if you're supporting businesses, like how do you support them taking the next step? Um, rather than you know just kind of kind of pouring money into into everything. So um, yeah, that's right. Uh, you had brought up the leadership stuff, and one of the, one of the in, in local cities and communities. And one of the things I like to say that we're doing a lot of the time when we're doing these plans is enabling and activating local government involvement, or enabling people to be involved more in their local communities. And so just doing what you do, I know that. You can't do it on your own. You have to have people in those communities and cities doing those, doing that with you and alongside you. And so, one, just kind of giving the a little spiel on that, and then two, uh, give me your best uh, basketball analogy for public planning. Since <laughs> the thing about the second one, but the the first one, um, yeah, I mean, our projects, insofar that we're the ones implementing them at various intervals of time, um, 100% rely upon intentionally the talents of people who live in a certain place, right? And I know you guys believe in this and, and practice this too. It's like those are the people who long after you're gone as a consultant will believe in the project that they had a hand in creating and will organize and tap into their networks and utilize their talents and resources to make something a success. And so um, I like to come to a community and, and learn who those doers and leaders are um, 
plug into what they're doing and then give them permission to make the project that we are set out to do that much better. Um, and when we depart and say goodbye to a community, oftentimes those communities take what we know how to do and marry into what they know how to do and make what they do better. And that's a really exciting outcome of the work that we have done is that um, you no longer need us sometimes after the first go and communities get it. It's not, once you do go through this process of implementing projects in real time, it becomes almost like a drug. You want to keep doing it. Um, and I'll just give one one example from today. So we worked on this project in Asheville, North Carolina with um, an organization called Asheville on Bikes. And it was a really ambitious project to really rethink one of their corridors that's being redesigned and rebuilt in the next couple of years. And so we put into place with a hundred and something volunteers over one weekend, um, a very exciting street, uh, street redesign project that was controversial, you know, uh, as many of them are. Some people loved it. Some people, including those who live their own businesses on the quarter, did not love it for some reasons. Um, but I saw a Facebook live feed today where um, the organization went out into the street and they put on one of these social distancing machines. Have you seen these? It's basically like, it's like a big circle that you are able to put around yourself that gives you the physical width no, that you need. I, I'll look that up. That's cool. Look it up. It's like you put like, yeah, you can use like rubber, like, like, um, like almost like bike tires like a, or whatever. Like a big bumper around. Exactly. And you give yourself the, 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 the space and their point was they went right to the street that we worked on with them and we had widened the sidewalks by a substantial amount by, I think it was between six and eight feet. And on those, in those places, you could pass each other just fine with your social distancing machine. And where you would go to most other streets where they were more oriented towards cars, you could not successfully do that. And of course it's tongue in cheek. Um, but the point being that we were able to create an environment with those people who are that passionate about their community, they want to make it better with more space for people, that they will go to exactly that project to illustrate the point that we don't have enough space for people in our city. Um, that's what I love to see because they've obviously have full ownership over that project, whether it becomes exactly the 3D version built from the paint later or not remains to be seen. But we've activated and built a constituency um, and help them as an organization, you know, bring excitement to what they do by having that project be, you know, implemented not as a paper drawing, but as a, you know, a real drawing in the street. So, and then a basketball analogy. I wish more people asked me that question because then I have a better answer for you. Um, you know, as a, as a basketball fan, I, you know, I feel like this is right now for us, the work that we're doing, this is like double overtime. You know, you've like worked really hard the whole game. You're keeping your head above water. You're, you know, up and then you're down. You're up and then you're down. And like right now, this moment for, for the work that we do and advocate for, like this is, this is like the, we need the game winning shot. Like this is when we really prove the value of this methodology. And this is when we win the game and, you know, set forth the next, you know, level of innovation, hopefully that we can get engaged with or inspire other people to get engaged in. But like, that's, that's how crucial I'm viewing this moment right now for people who believe in, um, the approach of the incremental and the temporary to inform that lasting long-term change. So don't pass the ball, take the shot. And take make sure shot. you make it too. Take the shot. Yeah, you better make it. Or pass it to the right person. <laughs> That's okay too. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, get the ball and get it in the basket. Um, Mike, in case we decide not to end with with that. Um, which I should be fine. Which would be fine, yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, but so we'll, we'll – we'll, uh, so Mike, um, I just want to give you the opportunity. Uh, anything that you want to uh, to plug or discuss, I'll, I'll let you have the final word. Sure. So we're, we're keeping track of, you know, this whole – conversation what cities are doing uh you can you can find that um online i think we can share the link with you to that spreadsheet but we've got you know 140 something actions that have been taken physically in cities in 107 cities across the globe and growing every day so i want to make sure that resource is made available to your listeners and otherwise you can go to you know street-plans.com or tacticalurbanismguide.com and find lots of information and access all the things that we've worked on and shared uh, publicly. So um, have a look. And you've had great resources for people that, that they can, uh, you know, get step by step and, and do things themselves. So we, I appreciate that. Awesome. Um, Mike, uh, thanks so much for, for being on this. We've appreciated your time and we look forward to hopefully uh, talking again as, as this thing develops and, and we all come up with new ways to, address uh, and come to a positive end um, after this crisis. Great. Likewise. And thanks for having me.